0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. So, we've uh, at the beginning, I kind of posed that scenario that many of us have been in a time or two, where a person comes and knocks on the door of your house, and you open it, and it is a member of Jehovah's Witness or a member of a Mormon, a Mormon church, and they are there to read you a Bible verse and to share with you something that is kind of quote-unquote laying on their heart, and they want to basically see you come from wherever you are inside your house to their church, uh, to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or to the Jehovah's Witness Church, And, and, and it's difficult at that moment when you're kind of put on the spot, what do I say, what do I do? Uh, I want to refute what they're saying. I want to go toe-to-toe with them. And they seem to have this sort of well-rehearsed script that they've been doing for 19 houses before they got to yours. And they seem to know this thing like the back of their hand. And, and here I am having to think about like all the verses that I... Oh, I remember that one verse, and then what about that other one? And I don't have my... I don't have my iPhone with me, so I can't Google it. And you know, you you got all these things going through your head that, of things that you you really want to do. And wh- what is it that we're is actually our goal? What what are we? What am I supposed to do? What am I? Spo- how am I supposed to share with this person? Or maybe the scenario is actually a little bit more intimate to you. Maybe there is a person that you know, a friend, a family member, a cousin or a relative of some kind that comes over for Thanksgiving and or whatever, and they are. Trapped in uh, Wiccan or Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism, and you're there around the table. And what do you talk about? And how do you even approach them in in their uh, their idolatry? And what do you say to them? And so it's important that we understand what it is that we're doing when, as as representatives of Christ, what is it that we should be doing, and what what should we be engaged in, and how should we go about it? So. I think in order for us to really think through that, we got to start at the very base of this um, with an understanding of what it really means to share the gospel. We say that a lot. I'll say it from the pulpit, or even say it in here, share the gospel. And you and I might walk away with a different understanding of what it actually means to share the gospel. How do I know when I've done it? Right? What is it exactly? And so I think it's worth it to just spend the first half really talking about what what are those things that we want to communicate to people in terms of sharing the gospel. What what does that actually mean? What do we want them to know? And so there's really about four four main things, and then there's a couple of things that just help us to kind of think through some of those main points. But um, the first thing that we mean... Uh, I think you know, any gospel presentation or gospel message has to start with God who created the heavens and the earth. You have to start there, right? God created the heavens and the earth. He made humanity to worship and fellowship with Him. And the Bible alone exalts God as the true God because He is the Creator. And that is in contrast to the false gods who are created by man. Okay, I want you to think through the phrasing of that. God is the true God because because he's the creator of everything, everything visible and invisible, everything that ever had a beginning is created by him. Now, whether you know it or not, that right there already is in contrast to to Mormon doctrine. Now, it may not be the Mormon doctrine that your Mormon friend knows or that the person on your doorstep knows, but that is in contrast to Mormon doctrine. Um, God, as we saw a few weeks ago, for Mormons, God, the God we worship as called Yahweh in the Bible, is a, a created being who is elevated to the place of Godhood and is now over this world. But there are other gods out there in, in the pantheon. So, um, so you're already pushing back uh, just in the presentation of God as the creator of all things. And anything in contrast to that is, is false. So we see, uh, like Isaiah 44, 9, uh, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witness, neither Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Jeremiah 10.10, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Uh, John 17.3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, many passages point to this reality that there is one God who made heaven, the heavens and the earth, made all things visible and invisible, and he made humanity to worship and fellowship with him. So, bare bones of the gospel has to start here with God who created everything else. And then we come to a, a problem. Mankind, whom he created, has rebelled against God and has become a slave God. To sin and as a result stands under God's holy wrath and judgment. This is the problem and the reason why. If you can think about the beginning of sharing the gospel, why would you want to do this? Has to be a has to be in there because otherwise there is no motivation to have awkward Thanksgiving conversations. There's none. Why wouldn't you just want to keep the peace? Well. The reason that you want to actually say something and quote unquote stir the waters a little bit uh, with something as inflammatory as the gospel message presented to someone who's lost in occultic uh, ideology or idolatry of some kind is because if God created us to worship and fellowship with Him, and yet we are enslaved to sin, that's a problem. And the person standing in front of you on your doorstep, that's what you have to realize. You you have to, even if you take a step back for just a second and just process what's happening right there on your doorstep, is someone who is enslaved to sin is standing in front of you telling you how you also can be enslaved to sin. Think about that. And this person who's standing in front of you does not know that they are enslaved to sin. They are blind. And they're attempting to lead you into blindness. Yet you are standing in the light. And they don't know, they're not bl- they don't know that they're blind. So there, there is some compassion that has to be there in our gospel witness, doesn't it? It has to be we have to actually think about seeing all of humanity that way people you walk a- across in the grocery store or have over for thanksgiving dinner or whatever el- whatever else you're you're doing anytime you're interacting with people this should be in the forefront of our mind if we're actually going to be witnesses of the gospel that that all of these are lost and 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 I think We can run probably into two different uh, hardships that way. One, we can kind of put it out of our mind altogether so that we don't have to think about that. And the other is we can only ever see people that way, and it becomes overwhelming for us. And we think, like, I just walked into the grocery store, and I, I walked out, and I was in a hurry, and how terrible am I? I didn't even say anything to anybody, right? So there, there's there's probably a, a you know different different ends of that spectrum, but I would much rather feel that way about about my trips to the grocery store than the other, you know. And far too frequently, I kind of leave and don't even think about it and put it out of my mind because it's a difficult thing to process. But it's it's something we must do. We must have compassion on these people, whether they're at our doorstep or we meet them in the grocery store, or wherever. They're a slave to sin, and, and so they stand under God's holy wrath and judgment. Okay, so if we think about that for just a second, let's process those, those uh, two things for just a second. When Adam rebelled against God, he opened the world to sin, which in turn resulted in death. So let's, let's look at how the Bible is putting that before us. Romans 5, 12-13. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So, Adam sins, he's got a law, don't eat, Adam sins as the representative for humanity, all of humanity fell as we inherit things from our fathers. So. We fall along with Adam. We are all then in the same snare that Adam is in. So since Adam, um, the Bible teaches that all mankind is enslaved to sin and unable to obey God. So we see this here, uh, Romans 8, 1 to 13, which is a a rather lengthy passage, but let's let's take a look at uh, that for just a second. There there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law is, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So that's troubling. That's enslavement. That's the definition of enslavement. But look at uh, Ephesians one, uh, 2, 1-3. says it may be more succinctly there. You were dead. He's talking about our state uh, before Christ. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's, that's the current state of all those outside of Christ, is what he's saying. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So he's saying, you know, he's contrasting the lifestyle that he and his audience in Christ now enjoy in Christ versus what the rest of the world is experiencing. So the enslavement to sin places us there under the wrath of God, as I just said a minute ago. Okay, so because of mankind's sin then, God's wrath now rests on all people. Now we haven't gotten to the good news yet, so we're just gonna we're gonna pause for just a second. We're gonna put all people in that bucket. Okay, we're gonna pretend like Jesus is not a thing just yet. All right. Without that, that uh, children of wrath like the rest of mankind without without Christ, that's all mankind. Right? The verse would say, we are by nature children of wrath, us and all mankind. Right, If, if Christ is not in the picture. Okay? So, so because of that, then, uh, God, who is just, will punish those who are rightly under His wrath. And the only fitting punishment for sin against an eternally holy God is eternal condemnation. That's it. Eternal punishment is the only thing that can result from that kind of offense. And, uh, you know, frequently I'll have questions from people about how I kind of process this or how even to explain this because I think some questions that we often get from maybe people that are outside the church, maybe people that don't frequently hear uh, eternal punishment preached, it has just in case you were wondering, has fallen out of favor with a lot of places. A lot of, uh, I hesitate to call them churches, but a lot of places uh, resist that idea of everlasting punishment because the logic goes, how could a loving God do X, right? And that would be eternal punishment. Send, Send someone to hell for all of eternity. Um. And typically, I, I think it's, sometimes it's best to use an illustration, sometimes it's not, because it muddies the waters, you know, but I try anyway. Um, if, if, if I were at a, at a baseball game, let's say, and uh, I were to get into an altercation with a guy sitting behind me, okay, he spills something on me, and I turn around, and we get into an altercation, the, before long, the usher's going to come down, and if I, if I, Smacked the guy in the face. Then the usher's going to come down. He's going to separate us. He might haul us off. He might, you know, he might just say you're kicked out of the stadium. Go home. Maybe he's going to probably do something. The punishment's going to be relatively minor, but it's there's probably going to be something. If when the usher came down, I smacked him, the punishment's probably going to be more severe because. He is a representative of the stadium, the authority of the stadium. We got to keep the rules around here. We can't just have fans go on hitting people, right? If the president of the United States was at that game and he was sitting in one of the suites, and I managed to get past security and sneak up there and get into the suite and I hit him in the face, what's going to happen to me then? I'll be breathing out of a straw for a good long while, probably. Right? And there's probably going to be a lot of punishment that's levied against me. The point is, the offense was, or the, the action was actually the same. But the, the offense itself grew as the person that was offended grew. Does that make sense? As, as the person became more of no, no, notoriety, then, then it became more severe. So, So then, what would be a fitting punishment to smack the Lord of all creation in the face? What would be the punishment only fitting for that? Um, and so th- I think that's a, a better way of understanding why an eternity in hell is the only solution for the offense of a holy God. So, okay, so that that's the case, that e- eternal punishment awaits. And we can look, I think, Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Um. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of, the, a lake of fire. So it's, it's highlighting eternal punishment, and the only, the only escape is the name recorded in the book of life. That's it. If, if, and if everybody is judged by the books of all the actions that were written in them, then one who is enslaved to sin is going to have a whole lot of stuff written in the books, right? And, and it's not going to be good. And so if there's not another book that comes in to, to, render a different verdict, then it's gonna, I'm afraid it's doomed for everyone. So then, the good news of the gospel, if we're really sharing the gospel, I think it's at least God created everything. Man rebelled against God and is a slave to sin, and rightly um, is under his wrath, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins by suffering the punishment of the wrath of God in our place. Um, it's really important that we understand that there is a punishment that Jesus is taking that is not his on the cross. That the cup of God's wrath is being emptied, poured out, the, the wrath. The rightful wrath that he has for me because of my enslavement to sin is poured out there on Jesus on, the, on Calvary's hill. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that is an appeasement, for the sins of the people. 1 John 2.2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is a propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God. Uh, That's what He is. That's what propitiation is. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Isaiah 53, this is before Jesus even came, is a prophecy about Him. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and, uh, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That's a cup of wrath that is mixed. And when Jesus says, I'm drinking this cup, I'm taking this cup, if it be your will that this cup pass from me, what cup is he talking about? That's a cup he's talking about. The cup of foaming with wine, well-mixed, the cup of His wrath, he's, he's about to drain it to the dregs on your behalf. So it's the only hope. He's, so the, the blessing of the resurrection of Christ is that in the resurrection, we see tangible, visible, actual evidence that God's wrath was satisfied. Because the penalty of his wrath, death, can't hold Jesus in the grave. You see that? So when Jesus gets up from the grave, then we go, it worked! That's why we're going to do apologetics in the summer. And that's why any apologetic argument that you're ever going to make for the validity of Scripture, for the truth of Jesus, or forgiveness of sin, uh, whatever, any apologetic argument you're ever going to make has to start with the resurrection of Jesus. If there are bones in the grave, this whole thing is worthless. That's it. If there are bones if the bones of Jesus are still there in the grave this doesn't mean anything. If he got up it means everything. Now everything changes, okay? If he got up. If he got up from the grave, we can go back to Jonah and talk about if it's, you know, if a if a man can really get swallowed by a great fish and all this kind of stuff. But I would say if if a guy at God's command, can get up from the grave, then do you think God can also appoint a fish to swallow a man? Well, that's, that's beans compared to this right here. So it all hinges on the resurrection. If Jesus was not raised, it's meaningless. But if he was raised, and the Bible is adamant that he was, and history is adamant that he was, then it means absolutely everything. And all of a sudden now, The wrath that God has toward me, a sinner enslaved to sin, can be satisfied by the sacrifice of one in my place. And his resurrection is proof that it worked. So, then what? You're sitting around the Thanksgiving table... And, and you go, okay, well, what, what happens now? Let's say I grant you all those things. I grant you that there is a God who created the world and everything in it, and, and He created everything visible and invisible, and there is a, a Son who was sent uh, to be God in the flesh, who died on my behalf to take the wrath of God, and He was perfect, and He died anyway, suffering the wrath of God, draining it to the dregs for me. Then what do I do? The Bible is adamant, you must respond Listen, everything is a response. Everything is a response. So, it's not all a response in favor of Jesus, but it's a response. So if you say this to somebody, and they go, eh, and they walk away, that's a response. That's a response of rejection, right? But the Bible is adamant, we must respond to this good news, how? How? By turning from our sin through repentance, that is a confession, a tacit admission of our sin, but the difference is between just mere confession and repentance. Confession is with the lips. That's necessary. you got to confess. Repentance comes from here. Repentance is a heartfelt, I see my sin, and I want to leave it. I don't want this. And out of the mouth comes a confession from that heart of repentance that is turning from its sin and, what else? Believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior to receive forgiveness of sin. Uh, So, I mean, goodness gracious, we could just be here probably all day picking scriptures, but let's do Mark 1.15. And saying this... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Romans 3.22 The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Acts. Well, uh, let's skip the longer passages here. You can read those on your own. Uh, Acts 17.30 The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to Repent. Revelation 3, this is written to churches here. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, biblically speaking, believing in Jesus is not the same thing as something we would say like believing in a historical figure. There are, you will find, many people, many, many people who will believe in Jesus like you believe in George Washington. Do you believe in George Washington? Do you believe that he existed? Well, yeah. He was a man a couple hundred years ago, a few hundred years ago. He you know, was a general, then a president, and all these kinds of things. Of course, yeah, I believe in, in George Washington. But, f- but believing in Jesus, that's not what the Bible means by believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is a personal trust. It's a, it's a, there's a trust. It's like I've said it a number of times. It's like believing your neighbor when they pound on your door and they say, your backyard is on fire. All right? Believing in your neighbor would be you go call the 911, you go grab water, you go grab whatever, fire extinguisher, you go grab a water hose, whatever you've got to do to put the fire out because you believe that your neighbor is telling you the truth. There is an action that, is, that follows on it because your heart has been changed from one that was watching a football game to one who's now trying to put out the fire in his backyard. Right? There's a response that comes as a result of it but I don't have to do that for George Washington. I can just believe that he existed, and that's it. There's nothing more required of me than that. Faith in Jesus is a personal trust that he, one, that he is who he said he is, and that he will do what he said he will do. So what happens then as a result of believing in Jesus is that it changes your entire life top to bottom. Now all of a sudden... That I know for sure because of the resurrection of Christ that there is life to come after the grave and that through Christ alone do I have eternal life. Now that I know I'm actually living for that, then the whole YOLO, you only live once, doesn't apply to me. I live twice. And actually so do you, which is the reason I'm telling you the gospel. Right? <laughs> So, you, you see, there's, there's a, there is a response that is required on the back side of this. So, here's the reason why I think it's important to begin on those foundations. Because I, I think we probably, hopefully, we're all in agreement on that. I think we are. But, what I want you to realize as it relates, from, as the gospel relates to the, the cult member who's standing at your doorstep, is that the true gospel is the best method of both refuting cultic beliefs and defending the Christian faith. So, it's not that you couldn't do more for your Mormon friend or your Jehovah's Witness friend that's on your doorstep. But, what do you need? What's what's the, the core thing? That shifts the conversation to solid ground. Well, it's that message of the gospel. And, and the, the reason why is because that simple presentation of the gospel contains so many rebuttals to cultic faith. You realize that? We have I have said from the very beginning that they all, all of them, uh, since, since Jesus left all of them, all the cultic ideology and beliefs and false gospels and things like this, have all had a very similar core running through them. And that is, here is what you need to do to save yourself. So they begin by undermining who Jesus is. And because if Jesus isn't who he said he was, and he didn't do what he said he did, then that means that we're still in the same state whether he came or not. And so now it's up to you, friend. You've got to save yourself. So the Mormon's going to tell you, and the Jehovah's Witness for that matter, well, yeah, 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 Jesus, 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 but, but you've got to do all these good works to be saved. Our Catholic friends are going to tell us some of the same things, actually. You gotta, we, now you've got to do all these other things because this is what it really means to be saved. All of it is grasping at your own bootstraps trying to pick yourself up. It doesn't work especially if you are enslaved to sin. So when you present the gospel to somebody, it is an inherent rebuttal against many of the things that they're there to tell you. So now, though, the ground has shifted to whether or not the gospel is true. you see that? Rather than me trying to figure out all the things that Mormons believe, wait a second, do I have my Mormon theology right? Am I, jo- is, am I getting them confused with Jehovah's Witness? You know, what is a Wiccan? I mean, there's so many different, and then there's going to be a new one tomorrow that pops up, and you're like, I've never heard of you. Who are you? What do you believe? All of it needs to be shifted to the ground of the gospel. You're man, you have sinned against a holy God, and for it, not only are you enslaved to sin, but for it, you rightly incur his wrath and judgment on the day of judgment. But there is one who paid for sin. You must turn and repent and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And in that is a rebuttal to every cult that's out there that would present to you a false gospel. You, you tracking so far? Does that make sense? I'm the doorway of the club and I'm saying, I'm with <laughs> <Yeah>. him. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. And if, <laughs> if I'm not with him, they're bouncing you. Okay? That's, yeah. <laughs> Uh, that might be lost on some crowds. You just need. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I admitted too much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that's good. All right. <laughs> okay. So that's the first reason. I think it, it's really important to remember. Let's shift the ground to the true gospel. Let's get it there immediately. Okay. Let's let's talk. Let me present to you what I believe. And I'm going to tell you what's true. And then we can argue on those grounds. Okay? Second, uh, we have to learn to respond to all circumstances in our daily lives, whatever they may be, with prayer. Um, when I say that, I've, I've done this in... in probably several churches, I know several churches, big and small, and, and I, I usually get kind of a, a, a unanimous head shaking, so it's all on you, okay, like, like a nod, right? If we were to pick a spiritual discipline, of all the disciplines, Bible reading and, you know, sharing the gospel and, you know, whatever, now, of all the things that we, we would say, going to church and all those, the one that would stand out as the most difficult for us, typically, many Christians, is prayer. There's generally a struggle to remember to pray, to come to the Lord in prayer, and, and, and even for the people that, are, that would be prayer warriors and would pray a lot, they would probably tell you, I wish I prayed more. Right? And you're like, you pray like eight hours a day. You know? <laughs> They're like, yeah, I wish I prayed nine. You know? And even they would say, look, I, I, I still wish I, wish I even gave more to the Lord than what I do. Um, I think that we, on the whole, are very proud. Uh, we're very, we struggle with pride a lot. Which is part of the reason why we don't pray. Um, I think prayer is a tacit admission that you're not the best and that you do need help and because we're proud and we struggle so much with prayer, then well the, the two lead to each other. Let's say it that way um, but I, but I think also too, there is a a complicating factor in prayer that often the prayers that you hear being prayed, whether it's from the pulpit here or you know, or me praying, or some, anytime we do corporate prayer, that's where you hear prayer, right? It normally has a lot of words, and the words are often very big, and they have sometimes some these and thousand thines in it, alright? And speaking the King James language, and all of those things go, you kind of listen to it and you're like, that was a beautiful prayer. I can't pray like that. I think we probably need to pull back a little bit on that and say instead that that's, actually the the Word commands us differently than that in prayer. That what the, the Lord is actually commanding us to do in prayer is come to Him with openness and honesty and just say it, right? Listen to this. Um, Matthew 6, 7 to 8. And just really think about that in relation to what Jesus. He's the only one that knows, really knows about prayer, all right? This is coming from the horse's mouth, all right? And not saying the rest of the Bible doesn't, obviously it does. I'm just saying this is coming, he's telling his disciples, they're like, I'm just talking into the sky, and I don't feel like, you know, can you teach us how to pray? These are Jews that grew up praying. They grew up saying prayers in the synagogue. They've been praying their whole lives. and, And so they say, can you teach us how to pray? And this is what he says. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. The Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then He gives this prayer that is a model that we we would look at as kind of a model. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's just sort of a model for prayer. And it is the simplest prayer that you could ever imagine. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's it. Yours is the kingdom, power, and glory, now and forever. Amen. In the King James. That's it. That's the simplest. And you think, what? doesn't it have to be 30 minutes? We have 30-minute prayer meetings here. And on Tuesday and Thursday. And... But but and I think you think about that and you're like, Well, oh, thirty minutes thirty minutes in prayer. They're technically thirty one minute prayers. <laughs> we said we literally set a one minute clock and we go pr- let's pray for this. Silently pray. You didn't have to pray the whole minute. Lord, help my family. Provide for us. And that's it. Another minute goes by, let's let's pray, let's confess sin. And you just confess your sin to the Lord. didn't even have to take the whole minute. So what that that means, sorry, one one quick. What that means is when you open the door and you see the person standing on the doorstep and you know what they're there for and and you start engaging in conversation in your mind, it's very, just remember, help me, Lord, because I don't know what I'm supposed to say. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Just give me help. Please. And, and what's amazing about Matthew 6, 7 to 8, is he says he knows what you need before you ask him. He knew what was happening outside the door before they ever rang the bell. So when you open just a quick prayer of dependence, and while you're talking, Lord, help me say the right things. I don't know what to, what to say. And then trust that that he's going to supply help to you. He's done it for me a million times. I know he will do it for his children. Third, we have to be prepared to give a defense. you got to be prepared. I mean, I'm not saying... That if you open the door tomorrow and you're like I'm not prepared, <laughs> that well might as well close the door then. Well, no, pray your prayer and then do what you can, right? Just say, say what you got to say. But it's important to prepare to give a defense. The, the Bible commands us that way. Um, for First Timothy or First Peter, where is it? There it is. First Peter three fifteen on page nine. In your hearts, honor Christ. The Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.2, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort in complete patience, with complete patience and teaching. You know, you have to prepare to give a defense. I get that. Um, you know, but, it, but it's, it's and, it, and it's constant. It's a, it's, a, it's a constant thing that you need to be prepared to do. Uh, that You're constantly thinking about it. And Timothy here, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's obviously preparing a preacher to do that. But the same would apply to us. Be ready. Always. Um, and I think this is where it starts to shift, maybe. Instead of thinking of evangelism as this sales pitch, I've got a deal for you. All right? And you're the salesman. And based on how good you do and all those kinds of things is, you know, whether they come to know the Lord or not. Instead of thinking about it that way, think of a presentation of the gospel as the reason why you are hope-filled. That, that's what Peter says. Always being ready to give an account for the hope that is within you. And as the days grow darker... Outside the church, you are going to look much more different than the rest of the culture. As the favorability of Christianity begins to wash away and things grow darker, the stars shine brighter. So your lifestyle should really be standing out to people that are lost. And there, some of them are going to ask, what are you talking about? That's my invitation. Whether I need an invitation or not, I can still give it. Here, here is the reason I'm not worried. I'm ready in season, now season. This is, what I, this is why I am filled with hope. Why I'm sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you why. That's what we're doing in evangelism. We're, we're bearing witness to what Christ has done. It's not a sales pitch. I'm telling you how you can have eternal life. I've got it. I want you to have it. It's free, actually. And there's no monthly payment. Um, It also means that we need to prepare. So the defense, then, is really a defense for why I am the way I am. Why I'm hope-filled. But it's also a means to prepare, that I need to think about it. I need to read books. I need to pay attention in church. When I hear people pose hard questions, maybe, you know, devout atheists, if there is such a thing. Atheists that pose difficult questions. Before I hear someone give an answer, I want to pause the podcast I'm listening to or whatever and go, how would I answer that? Just a little mental exercise of preparation. What would, what, do, what would the Bible say about that? Do a little, you know, internet search. What does the Bible say about this? And you know, thumb through my Bible and read and, and try to answer that question for myself. How would I answer that question if posed by uh, an outsider to me? Before you listen to how someone else might answer that question, think, prepare. Finally, and the most importantly. We have to rely on the power of God alone. Um, this, I say this, and most people are like, well, duh. But when you walk away from that evangelistic conversation, you've just borne witness to the hope that is within you, and you, you've maybe pushed back on some of their assumptions. Maybe, you, maybe you're like, there's some things I did really good. you're going to go home, and before you hit the car... You're going to go, I wish I would have said this. I wish I would have said that. Yeah. And you're going to be real tempted. And if you had their phone number, you might, you know what? I you're going to burn up the text messaging conversation on, you know, on the way. Because you're like, I. I one, and one more thing, right? I wish I would have done this and that. There's, there's going to be a point where you just have to rest. And just trust that whatever I said God can will even use to change a person's life that, that's what Paul that's what Paul's saying in first Corinthians is I came to you and I just shared the gospel that was it. I didn't try to refute all the things of the world I didn't try to do this I didn't try to do that I didn't come with you with all these like kind of eloquent presentations and all this kind of stuff I just Here's Christ and Him crucified. And look, there's a church here. If that isn't proof that something as seemingly foolish as the gospel message has the power to save, I don't know what is. That somebody's life would be entirely changed by hearing they can have eternal life. So rest in the power of God if this is the case, that we can rest in the power of God to change hearts, to open eyes, to, to bring the dead to life, like He says He does through the Gospel, then I have ultimate hope. Because when I open the door and the person is there on the other side, I don't have to know everything that they believe. I don't, I don't even have to be a theologian, a a. a you know, Spurgeon or a whomever else you might look up to on the other side. I don't have to be the the most well-versed in everything, every doctrine of Christianity. I can just be faithful. I can rely on the power of God. I can trust that He's going to provide me. I can rest in the fact that He will bring Things to mind that I I was not, I would not have thought of. I cannot tell you how many times I've been in a gospel conversation and verses that I cannot recite to you right now came with stunning clarity to the forefront of my mind. Things I didn't even know I had learned that came to the forefront of my mind. And, And guess what? He doesn't tell you, hey, two days from now, there's going to be somebody that's going to come to your doorstep and you're going to open your mouth. And when you do, I'm going to remind you of these verses. So go ahead and study up. He doesn't say that. He also doesn't tell you what he's going to tell you. It's not until you open your mouth that then all of a sudden this stuff comes to the forefront of your mind and you go, that's the Lord bringing those to my attention. You don't know that until you're there. Be Be faithful. And trust, and know that what, you know, whatever whatever I'm able to share, so long as it, is, as it is the good news of faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, God can, often does, and will use it for His glory. Question. Yeah. 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 You don't have to study the frauds. You need no. to study the real the true gospel. Yeah. Timothy. Yeah, uh on the next line. <laughs> uh you know, I when it when it came down to going through, I was kind of thinking, okay, when I open the door and there's somebody on the other side, they don't necessarily know how I'm living. But of course, if you're if you're um, the the message of the gospel is communicated through lives of righteousness and holiness. So, particularly if you're sharing with your um, family members and people that know, they're watching you, how you live. Um, there's no gospel message. That can be so good and so presentation a presentation that can be so astounding that it's going to overcome, you know, a life, uh, a, you know, your current lifestyle of debauchery and you know sin. Um, that being said, in your presentation of the gospel, you 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 should present your imperfect imperfection. Your fallenness—you, you don't. No one, none of us are perfect. So the presentation of the gospel accounts for that. This is this is who I am here. And without Christ, I don't have forgiveness. I, I I'm worthy of condemnation and death. So th- there's a, a battle of shame. I think that sometimes is also. Felt there where you can say, oh, I don't want to present the gospel because I mean I'm not perfect. Well, none of us are. <laughs> so the gospel is is accounting for that. That said, a life of righteousness. Yeah. <laughs> Everything that i went through. but god listens he hears and knows what i'm feeling yeah and, and i am notorious for doing it while i'm outside walking the dog yeah <laughs> Yeah. And I get to talk to my father who cares about yeah. everything that's going on. Yeah. And I feel privileged when I carry one of your names mm. to him. Yeah, he knows what's going on, but now he knows I care too. Yeah. And and you know it's just yeah. oh it's so thrilling. Yeah. yeah. That's good. That's good to hear. Let's go ahead. Well, let's, uh, it's been uh, fun to study this and present this to you, and um, I hope it's been helpful. Um, we'll uh, start next week with suffering. Tom Allen will be teaching that in here. Um, we'll all meet in here. We'll present what we're going to be talking about that week, and then we'll separate. I'll be teaching in a fellowship hall. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a time together. We um, certainly pray for all the things that are taught, as we do every week. Um, in our prayer meetings that what's taught in here would be true and good and right, Um, that it would be uplifting to the body, uh, be edifying, shaping, that it would help conform us to the image of Christ. We pray that you would um, empower all the things that are taught, your spirit would go um, before it, in and through it, after it, um, to build it into our hearts, that we might know it that we might come to know you um, even better. That it might be our joy to present to somebody else uh, the power of your spirit to raise us like Jesus from the dead, to give us eternal life in um, his kingdom forever. I, I, I pray that that would be our joy and privilege to be able to present to someone else freedom from the condemnation of sin because of the sacrifice of Christ alone so we pray that you would do that in and through us in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10:30 and Wednesday nights at 6:15.